The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The idea of rebelling against the commonplaces that you hear every day on the news or whatever about you know, the need for the Fed to do this or that or the requirement to like cut back on certain kinds of individual consumption for concerns about climate change and stuff. There is a kind of a, of a revolt against all of those collective forms of rationality and, and a refusal that is then accompanied by an idea of like, no, I'm going to instead do this bizarre hybrid thing where I take something from the deep past and the future, fuse it together and just sort of depart from the trajectory of like progress or modernity altogether. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 18th, 2023. Think about the world. You might be picturing a globe in a classroom with its patchwork of multicolored nations, or perhaps you have an image of a 2D map in your head, the famous Mercator projection, a static jigsaw puzzle of borders and countries. From elementary school classrooms to the Olympic stage, the globe and the map tell a story of how the world works, one in which state sovereignty reigns supreme, from the Treaty of Westphalia until now. But what if that's only part of the story? As Quinn Slobodian writes, the modern world is pockmarked, perforated, tattered, and jagged, ripped up and pinpricked. Inside the containers of nations are unusual legal spaces, anomalous territories and peculiar jurisdictions. I spoke with Quinn, professor of history at Wellesley College, to discuss his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. We talked about some of these sites of exception, the city-states, havens, enclaves, free ports, high-tech parks, duty-free districts, and other spaces Quinn calls zones, why states give up these slivers of sovereignty, and how the world actually works as Quinn sees it. We also talked about LARPing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 18th. Crack up capitalism with Quinn Slobodian. Now, Quinn, many of our listeners will be familiar with a sort of mainstream vision of the world, one seen on globes and maps uh, in which there are bounded nation states. Uh, This is also the world that we see at the Olympics, you know, each team carrying their nation's flag. But the world or the political reality, I think that you describe in your book is much different. Uh, So I want to start there with maybe maps and visions of the world. What is the mainstream vision of the world, politically speaking or geopolitically speaking? And then what's the reality that you are describing? Yeah, I think that our sort of reflexive way of thinking about the world we occupy is often really dominated by these political categories, right? Like the idea of national borders, the idea of citizenships, passports. These are the kind of primary orientation points we have for sort of figuring out where we are and then establishing where others are. But when it comes to understanding sort of political economy rather than just politics, I think that that world of the kind of checkerboard of nations really has its limitations. And the idea that we can sort of get a working model of everyday reality by simply thinking about territories as being relatively evenly colored, you know, from one end of the border to the other, misses a great deal about the extremely uneven geographies that exist inside of nations. So that was the kind of the starting point of my book was to sort of say, what sort of categories could we use to break out of what Headley Bull famously called the tyranny of existing concepts, right? How do we kind of unsettle our own often too comfortable relationship 
to the idea of the nation. Now, anyone who's read your book, or I think even the blurb um, or, or the jacket cover knows that the book focuses on what you call and what others call under the umbrella term of zones. So I want to start there sort of mm-hmm. definitionally and maybe a sense of the scale. Uh, so what are zones? Where do they come from? You know, what's the scale? How many kinds are there? Mm-hmm. And where can you find many of these zones today? Yeah, so exactly. My, my primary tool in the book uh, or my 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 lever that I'm using to try to shift us from our, our comfortable seat in this vision of the nation is to focus on these zones. And what zones are, are sort of subnational jurisdictions. So they're parts of a nation that have been sort of ring-fenced territorially and granted a different status internally. So they've been usually granted lower taxation, less regulation, some sort of suite of inducements for mobile capital to come and make their make their investments there, build the new production facilities, set up a call center, place refugees in advance of their processing. A lot of the functions of sort of everyday capitalism end up becoming sort of focused inside of the warehouses, factories, industrial parks, and so on, inside of places that have a kind of a different legal status and certainly a different sort of fiscal status than the space surrounding them. The general umbrella term for these zones is special economic zone or SEZ, but they've existed in many forms and under different names over the decades. So one of the starting points one could point to is in the United States, where in the 1930s already, there were things called foreign trade zones that were created, which were sort of technically offshore, even though they were onshore and allowed for the storage of things without duty or without customs, um, even though they were on American soil. So you could do things, you could do sort of little tricks like, you know, import a bunch of components and put them inside of one of these foreign trade zones, assemble them there, and then bring them, you know, outside of the foreign trade zone into the nation proper, thereby avoiding paying tariffs or taxes on all of those or duties on all of those individual things and just pay it on the finished item. So that's one example of, of a kind of one of the everyday tools of the use of zones that's uh, almost 100 years old in the US. But more famously, it has been used by countries that are sort of seeking to industrialize. And most famously among those, it was used by the People's Republic of China beginning in the late 1970s as a way to kind of piecemeal begin a kind of a reform and opening up process. So rather than that sort of overnight liberalization of prices and that sort of big bang or shock therapy model that post-communist countries used in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, Famously, the the Chinese model was to do it much more slowly and to the point much more geographically pointedly in these in these small territories in the southern coast, most most well known of which is Shenzhen, in, inside of which totally different political economic rules applied. So outside of the zone, you know, land was commonly held, contracts were permanent, lifetime. Uh, There was no such thing as kind of unemployment inside of the zone. Land was turned back into a commodity. Labor was turned back into a commodity. Foreign owners could come in and invest and own parts of the property. There were possibilities of, you know, very rapid, rapid upward mobility, but also the chance to really fall, you know, through the gaps of the safety net in a more profound way than otherwise was true in the rest of China. So, this is the, you know, when people talk about the kind of mystique of the zone, usually they're thinking about Shenzhen and the, and the way that the Chinese rise to economic superpower that it is today was in a way enabled by the multiplication and the pl- proliferation of these, what they were actually sort of miniature versions of Hong Kong that crept up the coast and eventually grew to cover almost the entire country. So, the 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 strong kind of um, cachet that the zone enjoys now is less because of the sort of industrial park or the warehouse model that I mentioned at the beginning, but more this impression that it's a kind of a magic gadget that can be used to propel any given nation 
from kind of like a more, you know, moribund backward status suddenly into the upper ranks of industrial producers as China has. And there's a lot of reasons why that's a false belief, but it's certainly one that captured the imagination of many people in the policy community and international development thinking now is really dominated by this idea that the only way you can get investors into your country is by um, creating new special economic zones, which went from existing in the few dozens in the early 1980s to now um, well over five or 6,000 globally with the, with the numbers rising all the time. Yeah, I think in your book, you contrast the difference between, say, uh, China and Eastern Europe and, and post-Soviet states uh, in the image of uh, the, the sluice gate versus the floodgate. And I do want to talk about some of the language, actually, because I think one thing the book does so well is use really colorful language to capture these really, at times, abstract political economic topics. But you mentioned Hong Kong a second ago. I want to start there because, well, because your book does and in, and in many ways serves as as a blueprint for this proliferation of zones. So can you talk a bit about Hong Kong as this sort of Ur model or um, and this idea of a, of a portable Hong Kong as well? Sure. Yeah. And this is a way to sort of to sort of touch back on your initial question about the world of nations. Part of this, my fascination in this topic comes out of my my day job, so to speak, as a as a historian and, and as a history professor, a professor often of international history and global history. And, you know, when we, when we have a, a class full of students and we're talking about the 20th century or the modern period, the, one of the big stories that we're telling there is about the move from a world of empires to a world of nations, a world of nation states. And that's usually seen as a kind of a very profound process and also in a way a kind of a, a process that cannot be reversed. You know, once the sort of the genie of nationalism has escaped the bottle, then, you know, inevitably demands from the people arise and eventually everyone does get their own flag and their own seat at the United Nations and so on. So the, the histories of, of wars of independence in the Americas, in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, up to the wars of decolonization in the 1960s and 70s, all share this kind of belief in the forward march from the empire to the nation. Why that's relevant to Hong Kong is, is that the people that I follow in my book, the neoliberal intellectuals who are very concerned about the sort of stability and um, health of capitalism in the era of the welfare state, the era of Keynesianism, the era of planning after the Second World War, are also very worried that this, this proliferation of nations, especially in formerly uh, colonized parts of, the, of, of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, that the, the wave of decolonization is going to kind of disrupt global capitalist stability. The 1970s were a time when global South actors led foremost, arguably by the oil producing states and their really epochal and cataclysmic decision to use the oil weapon in 1973 and embargo and block the shipment of oil to countries that were supporting the state of Israel there was this sense that there was a kind of tidal wave of uh, disruptive political revolutions happening, coming from the third world uh, in danger of sort of swamping the first. People like Milton Friedman, who's the figure who figures centrally at the beginning of the book, were concerned about this. And he, in 1978, and this is a sort of opening shot of the book, so to speak, is in Hong Kong at a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society, and also filming the first episode of his extremely popular PBS series, Free to Choose. And he's is sort of infatuated with Hong Kong. He falls in love with Hong Kong more deeply than ever, right there and then in late 1970, in, in 1978. And the reason why is because it seemed to be moving against that tide of events that I just described. Hong Kong was, of course, not a nation. It was a crown colony. It was a possession of the British. It had been seized in the first uh, opium wars and then expanded through a 99-year lease in 1899. And because it wasn't a nation, and because, more importantly, it wasn't a democracy, you could run the colony, as it was often said, like a corporation. So the 
person who was the, the financial secretary was more important than the governor. They had a set of regulations that almost didn't exist anywhere else, including a 15% flat tax rate, a 15% uh, corporate tax rate. They had free trade built in as a kind of automatic principle that could not be contested. The decisions were made in a kind of coalition between appointed governors from Britain and local business elites, some of whom were of Chinese background, others were of uh, British background. So it looks like this, this anachronism on one on the one hand, right, this sort of like leftover bit of the age of empire, the age of the 19th, of 19th century commercial expansion, when, you know, Britain was sending the East India Company and the West Indies Company around the world and corporations were kind of doing the dirty work of empire on behalf of the crown, so to speak. It seemed like nothing could be less modern in a way than a place like Hong Kong. And yet here it was finding its niche extremely well in the kind of scrum of global competition in the late 1970s, doing uh, a huge amount of, of small scale sort of light industry manufacturing, becoming a financial hub for the region. And the, the secret sauce, the kind of the recipe, according to Friedman and, and many of his collaborators, was precisely its lack of democracy and its status as a kind of political peculiarity, which nevertheless was very well suited, it seemed, to operating in a sort of maximally efficient and productive way in an era of increasing globalization. So the task for Friedman and, and his like-minded thinkers, uh, many of whom were economists, some of whom were political scientists, was to figure out how to replicate the kind of core aspects of the Hong Kong model. How could you make this seemingly backward thing, this crown colony, into something that was fit for purpose in an era of nationalism, an era after empire? So they set about kind of trying to sort of you know, take it apart, strip strip the Hong Kong model down to its essence, and then try to think of ways of making these policies kind of portable. What they ended up with was a few things as being central in their minds. One was the idea of constitutionalizing the low tax rate and the openness to trade. So this is akin to the, the efforts that had been made in the United States around the same time to create a balanced budget amendment to place one into the, the U.S. Constitution, kind of a longtime dream of people like Milton Friedman and James Buchanan. Um, in Hong Kong, and this is where this is the twist that really drew me into this this book project in a way in Hong Kong, in the run up to the handover and back to China in 1997, there were deep negotiations between the kind of Hong Kong business elites and the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, the neoliberals watching were like, this is it, it's over. They're going to come in and kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. The communists are going to ruin everything as usual, dot, dot, dot. But the precisely the opposite happened. It turned out that the, the communists were just as interested in that rule of law understood as investor security, bank privacy, openness to trade, liberalization of, of, of internal uh, establishment of new businesses. Uh, they didn't want trade union rights. And in fact, they were happy to write in into the new Hong Kong basic law, these very aspects of, of the sort of the portable Hong Kong model um, and make them permanent. What that meant then was people like this fellow Alvin Rabushka I talk about, who's still a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, writes what has been called the kind of the Bible of the flat tax movement based on the Hong Kong model, tries to roll it out in the United States. It doesn't succeed. Tries to roll it out in East Central Europe in the time of the end of communism and does succeed. And a large number of formerly communist countries adopt a Hong Kong style flat tax in the course of their attempt to bring in investors in the 1990s and early 2000s. The other way that they try to make portable the Hong Kong model is through the creation of these so-called enterprise zones, which become new sort of policy gadgets that are used in Britain under Thatcher at the beginning of the, 
the Thatcher government, and then they they try to roll them out here in the United States under Reagan, and they stick around. So the only real policy left for kind of urban development in the United States to this day is trying to create these small zones, whether they're called empowerment zones or opportunity zones, which are have a direct genealogy or a lineage, which which leads directly back to this attempt to create as. Reason Magazine said sort of snidely in 1977, two, three, many Hong Kongs, riffing on Che Guevara's call for two, three, many Vietnams. So through the, through the flat tax idea, the idea of an enterprise, an urban enterprise zone, and then also thirdly, through the creation of these quite high profile things called indexes of economic freedom, which give a kind of a number and a, and a global ranking to places according to their level of capitalist freedom, uh, which put Hong Kong at the top from the first time they were published up until very recently. Hong Kong and Singapore become the kind of templates or the models for how countries should, even after decolonization, sort of seek to engineer their policy internally to make them sort of the perfect shell for global capitalism. Now, before we move from Hong Kong to some of the other experiments uh, libertarian fantastical experiments. I think uh, as you progress through the book, some of these get grander and grander and, and a bit more out there. Um, I just want to take a quick detour uh, definitionally. So I think you know terms like neoliberalism, even libertarianism can often be appropriated or misappropriated. Mm-hmm. So just to get the readers on the same page, uh, when you use um, neoliberal, anarcho-capitalist and libertarian in this book, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, neoliberalism is definitely even the, the slipperiest of those three. And they're in a way sort of like nested inside of each other. But neoliberalism, I would say, you know, just very quickly gets used in about three or four ways. Like sometimes people will say we've entered like a neoliberal era in the 1970s or something. And it's like this period of time. Other times people will say like neoliberalism is just a way that people sort of think about themselves and others, like reducing everything to commercial transactions and seeking to maximize your own kind of bundle of assets and so on. The third way and the way that I use it in my work is to refer to a pretty discrete intellectual community, intellectual movement. So the term itself was used as a self-description for the first time in 1938 when a group of people got together in Paris and were trying to figure out how they could think of a kind of revamped version of 19th century style classical liberalism. So it wasn't, you know, Smith or Mills liberalism. It was going to have to be using the state more proactively to protect markets and to protect capitalism in a time then of, you know, right-wing fascism to the right and left-wing socialism to the left. They embarked on this kind of intellectual journey of thinking about what solutions and remedies were necessary to safeguard the market or capitalist stability. And those conversations continued after the Second World War, most notably inside of a kind of gathering of people called the Mont Pelerin Society, which was uh, founded by Friedrich Hayek in 1947. Milton Friedman is also at the, the founding meeting. And, and was, it was an interesting, it's a very, you know, very interesting sort of ongoing set of intellectual conversations amongst a relatively small number of, you know, a few hundred people, but through which one can kind of read a lot of the changes of the 20th century, not in the sense that they made them happen. But it's been interesting for me as a historian to sort of say like, well, how did this group of neoliberal intellectuals respond to, say, the rising ecological movement or to the 1960s or to the processes of decolonization? And s- sometimes they had very interesting insights and they were often very symptomatic, I think, of they're sort of speaking on behalf of capitalism as such. So that's just kind of like their ideology was kind of to speak in the name of capitalism. So so when I say neoliberal, I mean like a thinker affiliated somehow with this well, Pellerin society. Libertarians, you know, are, uh, are a group of thinkers who are, you know, much more likely to call themselves that than neoliberals are to call themselves neoliberals. And within that Mont Pelerin community, there are kind of like, a few main schools of thought. So 
the Austrian school associated with Hayek and Mises is quite different, actually, from the kind of Chicago school associated with, you know, Friedman or Stiegler, which is itself then different from the anarcho-capitalist tradition, which is associated more with people like Murray Rothbard and um, David Friedman, Milton Friedman's son. And the difference between the the different um, schools of thought often has to do with the level of at the level and the and the and the style of government intervention that is assumed to be necessary. So, starting from the most extreme end of the spectrum, anarcho-capitalists quite literally believe that the government needs to be done away with altogether. There should be no state. There should be no representative democracy or any kind of political structure whatsoever that everything that states do now can be provided by private services so you can contract with private security forces you can settle disputes through third-party arbitration or insurance rather than through you know litigation in that or legislation so that's the most extreme form when you walk back towards the austrians and even further to the german kind of ordo-liberal tradition there's a much more of a tolerance or a willingness to use the government or a necessity to use governments and states to allow for democracy to exist, um, even to encourage it within certain bounds, within certain boundaries. And then by the time you get to the ordo liberals, you know, you actually need a very strong state to keep competition going to provide often a basic safety net and so on. So when I say neoliberal, it's sort of a big tent of people who are sort of self-understood actors speaking in the spirit of and in defense of what they think of as a free market order and libertarians subset within that much more skeptical of the state than some of the others. And then within the the libertarian community at the furthest right wing, you have anarcho-capitalists or ANCAPs as they're sometimes uh, described. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That spectrum is really helpful, uh, but I think you did leave out one famous anarcho-capitalist, and that is Logan Roy from the HBO show Succession. <laughs> he was recently exactly. described as yeah. such, as opposed to a paleoconservative, which some people, but that one's for the Succession fans out there. <laughs> I want to move, as I said, from Hong Kong to some of the other experiments, uh, case studies uh, mm-hmm. throughout the book, uh, especially the one in South Africa in the what was known as a Bantustan of Siskai, not just because I actually lived in uh, the former Siskai, uh, current mm. Eastern Cape and King Williamstown for about a year back in 2015-2016, but also because I think it is one of the more fascinating case studies in that some of the these episodes you describe seem to sidestep or, or ignore questions of race and identity, mm. whereas this one completely foregrounds it. And I also think it, it, it does a great job in... in illustrating one of the central paradoxes of the book that I saw, which was that a lot of these zones existed uh, actually because of the state <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than in spite of it, mm-hmm. which I think is is the the fantasy. So I'll, I'll toss it over to you to, to kind of lay out the story of, of Siskai. Sure. Yeah. That's so interesting that you, that you lived there. I also lived close by in Lesotho when I was a child in the independent nation inside of South Africa in the apartheid years. I'm also glad you honed in on that chapter because I think it's, it's for one thing, I think the most original contribution to the literature is in that chapter. These, this is not a story that was well known or, or has been described. And it also, I think, 
give some heft to the idea of the zone beyond just the idea of, you know, billionaire exit, you know, like the fantasy of the spaceship and the seastead and stuff, which is, you know, can be important. But what I was trying to really get across in the South Africa chapter, which I'll explain, is the idea that there is uh, a model of politics that is explicitly, you know, drawing on these workaday uh, techniques that come out of just everyday capitalist life that the, the certain people are trying to import back into politics. So, you know, we began by talking about industrial parks and warehouses, and this can seem quite distant from like, you know, libertarian grand fantasies. But the point is that the insight in a way of anarcho-capitalists and libertarians is in some kind of libertarians, I don't want to cast too wide of a net there, but is to sort of look at the, the way that we interact with each other economically, whether it's through material exchange, through contract, through the threat of being sued, through the processes of arbitration. And then they ask, you know, what if this was just how we organized everything? Like, what if we did away with the part of, of life where we go every couple of years to the ballot box and and elect someone? What if we just substituted services, fee for service, everything? And South Africa was being a place where the sort of the end of white rule came very late. It was also in an era where this sort of those cultures of globalized capitalism were also quite well advanced. So the kind of ideas that you could have in late apartheid South Africa were of a different kind than the kinds you could have in sort of, you know, late French ruled Algeria in the 1950s or um, British ruled Ghana in the 1950s. The kind of things that people were proposing and became very prominent in doing so in late apartheid South Africa was that instead of having a transition from white minority rule to black majority rule in which the borders of South Africa would stay the same and there would be kind of one person, one vote style universal suffrage. In other words, what eventually did happen. They said, what if we use the kind of zonification that's happening globally and use that itself as a kind of a model for a new polity? So what if we take the unified territory of South Africa and shatter it into hundreds of small zones or what they called cantons and within each of these zones, just as you can pick and choose the kind of laws you want or taxes you want as an investor, when you go searching for a place to build a new factory, you could pick and choose on a menu of options for the kind of state that you wanted to inhabit as a citizen of this future kind of hyper-federated version of South Africa. And the model that they were using were the Bantu stands or homelands that the South African uh, state had already started creating in the late 1970s as a way to kind of answer criticisms internationally. So their, their solution was to say, you know, you're criticizing us for having two-tier system of white, well, three white colored and black inhabitants of South Africa. Well, we're going to make, we are going to make nations for our black residents. So we're going to create these artificial and often sort of non-contiguous territories and we're going to grant citizenship to our black citizens within these zones and, and now we've decolonized so look we actually just did what you've been telling us to do we gave the black population its own territory it was a completely absurd and fictitious performance for the international community and very few people in the international community bought it because what these really ended up being is kind of open air prisons, dumping grounds for political dissidents, surplus labor, and were not in fact places that people had strong identification with or, or, or ties to historically. But one of them, and this is where the intersects with the story that, that I told in the book was sort of granted to the oversight of a South African libertarian named Leon Lowe, who was a member of the Montpelerin Society and could a part of that ongoing conversation, who said, you know, I'm going to make this one, Siskai in the Eastern Cape, uh, kind of a model for what South Africa can become in a kind of 
cantonized or zonified model. And he immediately set about sort of lifting all the normal regulations. There would be lowering taxes, trying to create, as it was described, a kind of miniature Hong Kong in the middle of South Africa and brought in, in short order, quite a number of investors from Taiwan and Israel and elsewhere. And some people were looking at the place and saying, wow, this is booming. This is actually kind of miraculous. You know, there's tons of new jobs being created. There's tons of new factories being built, industrial parks and so on. And the neoliberal community globally was ecstatic. It sort of became a, like a like a libertarian Cuba for a couple of years there, you know, in the sense that people were like, over there, they're really living the dream. They're making it happen. So John Blundell, a major British think tanker, it's like celebrating it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. There were these discussions about how we can replicate the Siskai model because it was supposedly doing like a pure version of a libertarian utopia. However, the reality was quite a bit grimmer. And it turns out that, in fact, the, the stability, so to speak, of Siskai was being guaranteed by a completely murderous violence against would-be trade organizers or democratic organizers. The trade organizers were being kidnapped and tortured and murdered, as were their families in many cases. And furthermore, the supposed free market policy was nothing of the sort either. The successes of Siskai were entirely based on very large direct federal transfers from Johannesburg straight to Siskai. And people were coming and building factories there because they, they were being given offers they couldn't refuse. They were basically, they were being, they were making money by hiring people because the subsidies were so high. So it was a kind of a parody almost of corporate welfare, you know, far from being a kind of libertopia. The thing that, that I found compelling about this was not just as, as sort of a playing out the contradictions often of supposedly stateless private ordering in um, real time or in a real place, but also that the effort was then made to scale that up and multiply it around South Africa. So the same person who was advising on the, the homeland then sort of said, and in fact, we have to do this with the whole country and, and wrote what was then a political bestseller for promoting this idea. So the idea that, you know, they were on a one way street from like empires to nation states and that these sort of legacy borders of nations, which were often created quite arbitrarily, right, as any historian will tell you in the first place, will somehow stand up. And that if we look to the future, we can expect politics changing internally, but somehow the containers of politics will, st- will remain pretty recognizable and similar over time. I just don't think there's any reason to believe that, right? I think that there's many entrepreneurs, activists who have... Uh, vested interest and a desire to see existing legacy states broken up and cracked up. And some of these for politically progressive reasons, some for politically conservative reasons, but that we just need to sort of sensitize ourselves, I think, much more to the, the, the strong current of political imagination that runs through the recent past that suggests that, you know, crack up is the just much more likely future in the medium term than kind of consistency or stability. Yeah, just to go back to some of those contradictions in legal fictions for a second, I was reminded of the scene in Hong Kong when uh, Milton Friedman and I believe other members of the Mount Pelerin Society were very distressed to hear, I think over their um, you know, fancy meals at the Mandarin or, or wherever, that uh, many Hong Kong residents quite a few uh, lived in public housing. <laughs> and so these these sort of mm-hmm. contradictions that prop up the fantasy uh, were really, really fascinating. I want to talk now a bit about the subtitle of your book, which is Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, to talk a bit more about this Faustian bargain. I think the the trade-offs that you laid out in the Siskai case are, are quite stark. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it sort of devolved into this violent police state that uh, in which you know people were were actually killed. Um, uh, but then there are other sort of maybe more innocent examples like Canary Wharf and even Hong Kong to a certain extent. So, can you talk a bit about this Faustian bargain? You know, what is what is given up even in in some of the more innocent 
quote unquote innocent examples. And then on the flip side of that, I'm also still curious, you know, what would what would zone boosters say, uh, you know, in in support of continuing on this trend of of ever increasing cracking up the world even more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a good question. I think that one of the things that I found when I was reading the literature, the more kind of technical literature that would be coming out from, say, the United Nations or consultants and people who are in the business of, of promoting the creation of new zones, for example, is that often the debate is just is is sort of revolves around the question of of best practices right and like kind of benchmarks and how can we make zones more effective um, what are the exact bespoke set of conditions that we need to create inside of each of these to make them work in the sense of um, increasing revenue and increasing numbers of jobs and the question that this sort of was in the back of my head was sort of like a more of a first order question, a second order question, which was just like, how is it that we have come to think of this as like the default and in a way, the only way to organize projects of modernization or to create growth. And the answer I think is, is that there is a kind of a conclusion or a starting assumption inside a lot of international development policy thinking which is just that democracies as such can't produce good policy. That, you know, people are basically self-interested, short-sighted. They don't have the resources to commit to understanding every policy issue. So that you need to actually take these sort of economic decisions out of the hands of average people as, as represented by the politicians they vote for and sort of hand them over to people who know what they're doing, so to speak. And when you do that, it makes sense to then say, all right, geographically, we're going to do it here in this space. And so there's the very, the very concept of the zone implies like a kind of a distrust of the people, a distrust of the masses. And sometimes for very good reason, right? I mean, the idea that, that institutions at national levels can become sclerotic and sort of dominated by special interests and even corruption and, you know, what's the expression? Mattress feathering, log rolling, all those metaphors. I mean, those things certainly do happen. But what I think that the, the sort of the idea that you need to create extraterritoriality inside of a nation as a starting point is often a way to also insulate policy from more radical and maybe even more interesting visions of the future. And I can give you a very concrete example of what I mean. And that is actually in London, in the the site of what is now Canary Wharf. So in one of the more direct kind of transnational transfers that I describe in the book, um, Jeffrey Howe, who became the first chancellor of the Exchequer for Margaret Thatcher, in 1979, was standing in a pub in the Isle of Dogs, which is where the Canary Wharf is, and he was, and he was like, "I just heard a talk about the need to create miniature Hong Kongs inside of British cities, and I think that's what we need to do right here. We need to create a part of London that is largely working class population, formerly industrial, now in a time of decline and disrepair, and we need to." take decision-making out of the hands of the local council and give it to developers and take it for the central government because we know what's best for London and they don't. Clearly, they're mismanaging their own backyard and things are going poorly here. So let's make uh, a mini Hong Kong here, a second city of London, a second financial district just down the Thames from the original city of London. And when when they were coming up with these ideas, they had a very direct sort of target in mind. So it wasn't just that they were saying, you know, vaguely speaking, like the people are dumb and we need to make decisions for them. In fact, there was a very robust city government at that time called the Greater London Council, the GLC, which was also, as it turns out, (laughs) very far left. So it was run by socialists, Ken Livingstone, known as Rad Ken. It was 
pioneering a lot of things that seemed way, 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 you know, beyond the mainstream at the time in the 1970s, early 1980s, but many of which have since become very much understood to be common sense policies. So things like discouraging single car driver use by encouraging public transit, thinking about how to use technology, especially early computers and personal computers in a way that were socially useful rather than just commercially applicable, figuring out how to integrate newly arrived immigrants who did not have English as a first language by offering basic healthcare services and childcare services to them in their original language or sort of liaising with them. Using culture, things like uh, music festivals, local newspapers as ways to create kind of alternative economies that were not reliant only on, you know, large corporations or large consumer bases. So the, all of this stuff was happening at the time and they were very well organized. They had a people's plan for the Docklands that they posed against Jeffrey Howe and company's idea for a second financial district. They were trying to organize the cleaners inside of the city of London and the the strategy of Thatcher's government was a fairly simple but radical one, which was to just abolish the Greater London Council. So they got rid of the London city government in the mid-1980s as a way of just clearing the path for you know what Canary Wharf is now, which is successful depending on how you, which ledger you look at, right? I mean, it's there are a lot of people that are employed there. There is high value real estate. But the Canary Wharf itself is also a place that is like formally outside of a lot of the laws of the surrounding city. So, for example, you can't protest inside of the city, uh, inside of Canary Wharf. You don't have the same rights of assembly and speech that you would outside of it. And for the most part, a lot of the, the buildings and the assets are there owned by foreign companies, many of whom are booking their corporate profits offshore in ways that don't come back into the coffers of the redistributive fiscal state in England itself. So this is an example, you know, and one could use, find many of these, especially where special economic zones have been rolled out in places like India, where they're briefly extremely popular, and we're often running at cross purposes to the desires of local government. There's often not just kind of innocent proposals being sort of laid out in blank space, which is often how they're sort of conceived or presented, but they're often landing in places where they're already existing, you know, local visions of how, you know, what the good life might look like and what a kind of thriving uh, community might, might um, mean. And they push those out for a set of laws and regulations designed mostly to profit those who are going to be taking the finished products or the services out of that space. It's the time-honored wisdom that uh, you can't lose an election if you never hold a vote, I guess. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, Jeffrey Howe, and we've talked about uh, Milton Friedman. Um, your introduction opens with Peter Thiel, and you talk about another colorful cast of characters like Curtis Yarvin and others. I think, like any good intellectual history, it's filled with strange, <laughs> compelling uh, intellectuals. But you know, I, th- I feel like this strain of thinking seems to especially attract... Maybe other people would use the word weirdos, but I'm going to choose the word uh, eccentrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. What is it? Do you think that 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 attracts such a colorful cast of characters to this strain of thinking? And then I'm also curious if if you had a favorite character to write about uh, in terms of uh, your book. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me in the course of writing it is that, especially you know, starting from that kind of commonplace storyline about the modern era, right? Like if you think about the American Revolution or the French Revolution to the wave of decolonizations, let's say right to the first, you know, multi-party mass elections in South Africa in 1994. That's like pretty cleanly 200 years of this story of popular sovereignty, right? As being the motor of world history. The reason why I think some of the people that I write about in the book often come across as eccentrics, or indeed, you know, are eccentrics, is they're trying to think their way out of that 200-year period. And in doing so, they go in two directions. They either go before it or they try to go after it. And a lot of the 
the more striking political ideas in the book are through that combination of like the archaic and the futuristic. So people who are trying to look at, for example, the way that law and order was was practiced in the 12th century in Britain along the lines of what they understood to be kind of Anglo-Saxon barbarian traditions brought over by the Teutonic tribes from Germany in their longboats or whatever. That combined with some vision of like gated communities, <laughs> right? I mean, there's, which they see as being units inside of a nation state that are reproducing kind of private government that is not beholden to a one person, one vote principle or any kind of sovereignty. And thus, you know, in kind of the pretty far-fetched extrapolations of some of my my thinkers there, but nonetheless, there's consistency what they're saying is like recreating the spirit of 12th century barbarian England inside of, you know, the the suburbs in Tucson. And then maybe even to, to go one step further, it's like even one, one order down is then even just the individual as your own little sovereign right. kings. Right, exactly. I mean, if you if you have that idea of like hyper individualism and and not much of a faith or belief in collective politics or mass politics, then you can be a kind of very extreme, like life artist in such a way that you model, you know, a kind of prefiguratively the kind of community that you want to have by just the behavior of you as a single individual. The best example of that, I, 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 I hate to choose. It's like choosing a favorite child. So I would go with two of the characters in the book. One who I have a genuine kind of um, a kind of a affection for as a thinker is um, David Friedman, so Milton Friedman's son, who I think is you know has been in touch with me, for example, in a very kind of open way, um, interested in things I'm saying, wanting to bounce back and forth about them, questioning some things, agreeing with others, but you know, in the same way that his father. Or, or in contrast to the way that his father, I think, was quite dogmatic and in the end, quite a technocrat, like uh, in, in, in his belief in kind of automating basically monetary policy and kind of trying to trying to turn the, the U.S. economy or any national economy into a kind of a clockwork that could work more or less by itself. Friedman, David Friedman, Milton Friedman's son, was much more wide ranging in his in his kind of political imagination. And among other things is an extremely devout medieval recreationist or reenactor and started one of the most long running kind of society for creative anachronism style gatherings in Western Pennsylvania called the Pensick Wars, which is a portmanteau of Pennsylvania and the Punic Wars. And in, in the course of, of um, his many decades of being a medieval reenactor, he introduced something called the enchanted ground, which was this part of the kind of the the camp space that would be cordoned off with a rope inside of which you were not allowed to break character. You needed to act as if you were in that uh, medieval time. And, you know, he got some flack for this because people, this is impractical or whatever, but he was you know extremely doctrinaire about it. Like if you enter, you have to follow the rules. And I had read about that. I thought of it as just kind of a bit of color or something for his personality, uh, portrait inside the book but then the more i thought about it the more i was like no but there really is something to this like the idea of larping or cosplaying as a mode of politics you know a way of living one's politics and, and through an act of kind of almost revolutionary commitment that says something about the vitality of this movement whose politics i personally don't identify with at all but I can understand why, especially for young people and especially for people online, which is where many people are drawn to these kind of politics, the idea of, you know, rebelling against the, the commonplaces that you hear every day on the news or whatever about, you know, the need for the Fed to do this or that, or the requirement to like cut back on certain kinds of individual consumption for concerns about climate change and stuff. There is a kind of of a revolt against all of those collective forms of rationality and, and a refusal that is then accompanied by an idea of like, no, I'm going to instead do this bizarre hybrid thing where I take something from the deep past and the future 
fuse it together and just sort of depart from the trajectory of like progress or modernity altogether into another pre or post modernity. And the character who, the second character who I would pull out, who I think does that most clearly and most radically in some ways is this fellow, Michael van Naughton, a Dutch libertarian who ended up in the Horn of Africa originally just consulting for digit for Djibouti on creating some sort of everyday export processing zones or special economic zones. But then when the civil war in Somalia broke out, he ended up teaming up with a local warlord and writing a constitution for what he described as a stateless society, which then morphed into an even more curious document, which is a kind of a codification of Somali customary law. So so there's a set of customary traditions for like restitution and reparation, you know, how many camels you have to give if, you know, a member of your family has been murdered or raped or whatever. He was trying to adopt this sort of judge, you know, law without states to the international business climate of the late 1990s. So his idea was if, you know, a Texan businessman wants to come in and invest in a port on the coast of Somalia and there was no state, so hey, maybe anyone can just go start a port if they have enough money and enough muscle, then they would become part of a clan with him, a businessman's clan, and they would, you know, act through bonds of both trust, but also kind of highly codified quid pro quo arrangements. And therefore, therefore they would have like sort of remove themselves from the fabric of, of public international law and be operating in like a truly kind of stateless space. And he went, he went some ways with this proposal and it remains a kind of like underground classic of anarcho-capitalism. The interesting conclusion though of his story is first of all he ends up getting thrown out of the country because there were local authorities after all but then the very place where he was proposing to create this deep water harbor with with his white business clan buddies um, ends up opening some months ago now in reality organized not by you know western european libertarians but by dp world the 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 logistics wing of state-owned Dubai company, which specializes in, in doing this, creating harbors, either leasing them or owning them outright and being much more effective kind of entrepreneurs of the extraterritorial zone globally than any of the kind of more harebrained online anarcho-capitalists that I introduce in the book. So that's really kind of the methodological twist that I use in the book is to sort of open up with ideas that seem completely far-fetched and and completely wild, and then often sort of tack back to show how the world that they're imagining is actually not as far away from our own as we might imagine or as, as we might actually hope. I have to say, I love the idea of highbrow LARPing as prefigurative politics. <laughs> It remind, I mean, I wonder if you know we'll see the same uh, on the left. I, I'm reminded of um, a figure on my graduate school campus who dressed suspiciously like a Bundist, uh, straight out of um, <laughs> like the Pale of Settlement or something. But uh, so, if you ever write a book solely dedicated to that idea, I would love to read it. But for now, the book is Crack Up Capitalism. Uh, I really think it's a it's a bit of a paradigm shifting book, and I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to discuss it with me. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. 
Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.